Welcome everyone to the Now It's Dark Movie podcast. This is Tim, and it's been a long time since we've had an episode. A lot has been going on uh, since we last talked to you. Mike has actually moved to a different country. He's moved back home. He eventually will be moving to England. Uh, as of course we've mentioned a couple of times, he's had a child as well, so he's been rather busy. And as a result, it's, it's meant we haven't been able to record a new episode, but we are back. My plan is to try to make this more of a regular thing with a rotating set of guests, people I know who are interested in films, who I enjoy talking to, and are interesting people in general. And our first guest in this kind of new uh, series of, of episodes will be my friend Dara, Dara Walsh. Could you uh, introduce yourself, sir? Okay, hello everyone. My name is Dara Walsh. Um, I've lived here in the same city as Tim for 10 years now. Um, I've, I guess I'm here because I've been covering the Busan International Film Festival for a while. And how I got into that was I majored in film in college. And so I've been co- I covered it for the radio station here for a few years. I've been covering it for a local website for a few years. And so kind of, I guess we're here to talk about that. You can, call, you can call me New Mike. You can call me Dara. You can call me whatever you want. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, indeed. No, we've we've talked a lot over the years about films and, you know, watched a few films together. And I know you've been pretty actively involved in the Busan International Film Festival mm-hmm. every year when it when it uh, hits town. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. Indeed. The Busan International Film Festival, the 27th edition, happened and wrapped up just last week. Mm-hmm. And it's the first kind of post-pandemic biff that we've had uh, since 2019 with no social distancing and full capacity seating for all the screenings uh, for the last two years. And you were at uh, the, the BIF uh, screenings for the past couple of years, right? I wasn't actually. Oh, really? I didn't go for the last couple of years. Yeah. Right. Kind of, it, well, kind of, it kind of passed me by. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to it. It was a very different experience bet, yeah. than what we've had. I mean, the first year in 2020 was very limited. They had no events, no guests, uh, the seating capacity, I think, was limited to a third, a third yeah. of the theater capacity. So it was all limited. in one theater as well, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, it was all in the cinema center, yeah, okay. the Busan Cinema Center. And they only had one screening per film. Okay. So it was really, really different yeah. compared to what we're used to. This Were they year, all Korean films at the 2020 Film Festival? No, they had international film? films okay, as right. well. Uh, yeah, because I remember one of my favorite films from that year was New Order, a, a Mexican film, okay. actually. So they they still had international films, but just one screening mm-hmm. and a third of the capacity. So if you think it's hard getting tickets now, <laughs> just imagine how hard it was then. Uh, they also didn't have, you know, badges and things like that. So oh, okay. you, you know, everyone who attended, uh, unless you were part of a, a very small press corps, was just an audience member mm-hmm. going to see films. There was no press badges even, like kind of... There were, but for very, they were very limited that okay, like year. National media. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of legacy publications in Korea. Okay. They may have had a few from abroad, but I'm, I'm not totally sure. Uh, this year, we had 242 films from 71 countries. So it's kind of a return to form mm-hmm. for Biff. I actually looked it up. Uh, In 2019, they had 330 films from 85 countries. So it's not totally bad. That's within the margins of... It's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there was no real social distancing. International guests were mm-hmm. back, including Tony Lung this mm-hmm. year, who was kind of the 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 big guest of the year. I, I had a chance to uh, watch the the Wang Garwai film Twenty Forty Six and I see him. To. I didn't see it. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It was kind of too bad because they didn't have English translations for the guest visit. They didn't for that either. Okay, no. all right. Because I was at one other screening of a, like a Taiwanese documentary and. There was no translators for that either. Oh, in previous years, you've been to previous years, there's always, there'll be someone, even if there's one English speaker in the crowd, someone will go sit next to them and translate. Yes, So I yes. kind of had to awkwardly file out at the start of the QA, Q&A when I realized there was no translators available. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. That's too bad. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing, which we can kind of get into a little bit later, that kind of selective use of, yeah. you know, uh, subtitles and They would have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a little surprised by that, uh, you know, such a prestige figure. It was still cool to see him. Mm. Um, And, you know, when you see someone that you've seen on the big screen for the longest time in person, it's always an interesting experience. I mean, he just seemed really shy, humble. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't seem totally comfortable being in the limelight, to be honest, which I kind of appreciate. I I can totally understand that. He's always giving off those vibes as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was really cool. Uh, there were also, you know, just a lot of programs, events uh, that we'd seen in previous BIFs, some some new ones as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an opening film from Iran called Scent of Wind, closing film from Japan called A Man. So it did feel like a return to form in many ways. Uh, overall, what was your experience like at BIF 27? It was good. Uh, I didn't see as many movies as I normally do. Uh, I had other stuff going on, but it was great to see the atmosphere of the film festival back you go to the cinema center people are milling around there. there's people sitting down outside that atmosphere is it's a big thing for the film festival seeing people around see people excited for these films um i was lucky to get to see all of the things i wanted to see but i definitely didn't see as much as i normally do but it was great to be back it was great to have people see people visiting see people from other countries coming in it's not the most diverse diaspora we get in busan you know so it's nice to see people from other european countries from south america from all these places from western asia uh coming into the film festival so that was great indeed do you keep a running tally of how many movies you watched this year i think i only saw seven this year okay i've done in previous before i was working at the festival i think i had 30 one year 30 something because i didn't have to go and write reviews or anything there was no other events to go to so i just went to see movies and yeah that was great those were good years but yeah kind of aging up now you know slowing down a little so yeah it, a it does get hard kind of seeing as many screenings as you can while also working mm. uh you know going to some events and parties and, and things like that. exactly yeah and you have a job as well presumably like you know, yeah. you're going to your day job also yeah. yeah yeah um i checked back in previous biffs i i think one year i saw 22 mm-hmm. uh this year i was able to see 18 mm-hmm. i think i did miss a couple i Shamefully slept in one morning and, yeah. and missed uh, my screening of, of Armageddon Time, the new James Gray mi- movie. Mm-hmm. Um, with movies like this, I mean, they will be available sooner or later. Sure, yeah, yeah. So it's it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, I do feel bad uh, anytime I miss a film that's kind of like a... A festival a, film. A festival film. Yeah. A movie, you're, it's going to be really difficult to see any place. You're always going to try to have a balance between the films that you will be able to see in six months or in a year. And the films that will never be seen outside of a film festival. They're Absolutely. kind of they're the things that are the most exciting about festivals, I think. Uh, so you gotta have a bit of a balance. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, it was good to, I guess, just feel like it, it was, you know, mm. normal again. Yeah. Um, and kind of be reminded of what it used to be like, mm. you know, back before the pandemic happens. Um, we're going to be talking about our favorite films mm -hmm. from Biff and kind of, you know, maybe praising, debating, disagreeing over some of the films. But before we do that, I just wanted to talk about a kind of a few observations from Biff, because I think we're at a really interesting point in history. And I think that's kind of being reflected in some of the choices that were made for this film festival. You're listening to an edited version of this episode. To gain access to the full versions of both this and other episodes, go to patreon.com slash now it's dark. For as little as $1.50 a month, you can not only gain access to our full episodes, but check out some other bonus content as well. And for around $3 a month, you can actually make fan requests to determine what sort of topics we talk about in future episodes. I also want to give a shout out to Nick Hemsley, our new patron. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get into our top films. Okay. All right. I thought it'd be interesting to go from maybe five to one. Okay. Um, I'm going to quick, quickly rearrange my list in my head to see, make sure I have a top five. Okay. I think I got it. <laughs> I got, I, I put two for my top five. Okay. Um, I'm going to say, first of all, Triangle of Sadness, mm -hmm. the Palme d'Or winner from Ruben Osland. Um, really interesting film. I, I'm not in love with it. Like, I'm not really in love with any of his films, but I think they're incredibly interesting, funny, um, satirical, witty films and uh totally worth seeing i think there's just kind of a it doesn't scratch a certain itch that mm -hmm. for me you know the best films for me kind of scratch there is something that's a little bit too comical or satirical about it um that tends to outweigh the kind of dramatic character aesthetic aspects of the film give me a what's the what's the premise the basic premise is it's this model couple um this young guy who's not super popular and just kind of breaking into the industry. He's seeing this model who's like really popular and kind of uh, an influencer. And they end up going on this cruise. Um, Is it influencer in the modern sense of the word? Yes. Like a, it's social media era. Okay. Oh, right. yes. And there are long scenes where she's just taking pictures okay. of herself. And like <laughs> they really get into that okay. and, and how absurd that is. Um, and they go on this cruise and... Um, I don't want to give too many spoilers because there's one character, an actor who appears at a certain point that's like, it's awesome when you see this person on screen. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, things go very awry and, um, things don't work out very well, you know, with the crews. And it kind of takes a, uh, a, a certain direction where it almost ends up like Castaway at mm -hmm. some point. Um, very funny. It's, it's ruthless in, in the way it kind of mocks class dynamics and stuff like that. Um, so that's the basic premise of the movie. Not, not perfect. Mm -hmm. I, I think really worth seeing. Uh, a really interesting film, and he tends to make films like this. It's very much in the tradition of of the films he's made. So if you like Force Majeure, if you like The Square, you'll like this movie mm -hmm. too. Aesthetically, it has flashes of like brilliance okay. as well. I, I also want to mention, uh, you know, for number five, Flux Gourmet, the new Peter Strickland film. He had made a film a few years ago. I don't know ago. if it is two number five business. This is, I know. I was having your cake and, and gorging on it too over here. Like. <laughs> yeah. I know. Okay, go on. Um, I'll allow it on my first appearance on this podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Strickland uh, is an English filmmaker, and he makes these really interesting films that, that 
features an incredibly interesting use of sound. Um, it it kind of has a 70s analog feel. Like there's a lot of tapes and, and things like that and analog equipment. And just the story itself is usually designed so that sound is a major player. This movie is incredibly bizarre. Uh, but it's basically about this commune of people with this patron who have been, or patron, who have uh, kind of gathered in this mansion to put on a series of performances, I guess, where they record food. Uh, they, like, do things with food, record it, while someone, like, does weird dances and stuff like that in this okay. weird performance. In an art film kind of way? Yeah, okay, right. but it's kind of, like... It's very funny. It's very strange. It's pretty dark in some places. Um, but the way they use sound in it is is just really creative. Um, like a lot of times, almost, it's almost like the sound kind of pulls away from the movie and just becomes its own character. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a creative, off-the-wall film that I think uh, it's, it's definitely worth seeing. It's not like the best film I've seen at Biff this year, but... Much like his previous film that I saw at Biff, I think it's called Barbarian Sound System. Oh, yeah. I saw that film. Yeah. Yeah. I like that film. Yeah. Yeah. And the like, Toby Jones, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really yeah, like that. Yeah. Like 2013-ish. Really creative yeah. use of sound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's almost horror aspects of it, too, yeah. the way he's using sound. I'm just... I forgot about the film existing until right now, and now yeah. I want to watch it again. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very interesting director and the sort of person I, I, I would feel bad leaving him off the list because mm-hmm. I think people more people should see his films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about you? All right, my number five. Yep. Um, I would say my number five is, now like I said, I didn't see that many films at the film festival, but luckily I didn't see any clunkers. There was nothing I hated, which, you know, you know, you've, if you go to see 20 films at a film festival, there's going to be a few that you struggle to stay in your seat during. Uh, my number five would be uh, Ali Abbasi's new film, Holy Spider. Um, which we talked about this briefly before we started recording. Yeah. Ali Abbasi's previous film, Border, was at the film festival and did very well. It was this strange folklore, body horror, Scandinavian drama, uh, which was an amazing, wonderful, wonderful film. Um, his new film is, he's Iranian, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it was filmed in Jordan and was immediately banned in his, in his native Iran. And it tells a story of a, a true story, a dramatized true story of a serial killer of sex workers in a city in Iran. So kind of that's the tone you're going for. It's dark, dark, dark. I liked it well enough. It's, it's a great opportunity to focus on the victims of a crime like this as i think a film like this kind of should if it's a true story pretty especially topical these you know days too right? say again pretty topical these days absolutely yeah um so i think a film like this, especially if it's true if it's a true story kind of should do this it did a little but not as much as i think it should it's a really bog standard serial killer drama like there's a journalist comes in thinks the cops aren't working hard enough on it. The main, the one cop we meet is a scumbag who like forces his way into her, into her hotel room. Um, it's very, very by the numbers. It finishes quite well where, so I don't know how closely this adheres to the true story, but slight spoiler warning, you know, if you plan on seeing the film, don't listen to the next 45 seconds of this. Um, but we catch the serial killer at the end and the identity of the serial killer from scene one, we know who he is. 
So his motivations and his identity are not a mystery. That's not part of the film, which is fine. I like that. Um, but he's arrested. He's caught and arrested near the end of the film. And then the film gets kind of interesting again, where it's about he claims he's on a holy war uh, against sex workers, against these, um, what's the phrase he uses? Um, fallen women mm. who he needs to eradicate the streets of the city with. And mm. then he gets a level of public support off the back of that. So mm. that's when it gets interesting again. I kind of like that exploration of the relationship between religion and this kind of mindset and this kind of crime. Mm-hmm. It's just a bit too box tanner. It's beautifully filmed. It's 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 got a fantastic atmosphere, kind of really oppressive atmosphere, um, as it should with the subject matter. But it was fine. It was fine. It was okay. Just not as good as Border. No, absolutely not. And I was really excited to see it because Border was so unlike anything I'd seen. Like, you yeah. saw Border, right? Yeah. There was periods of that film where I'm sitting there in the theater thinking... I have no idea where this is going. This is great. I have no idea what's going to ha- be happening in 20 minutes. That didn't happen with this film at all. Yeah, I, I'm i a little disappointed to hear you say that because I was. this was a film I didn't get to see at Biff, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of disappointed. Uh, it is apparently streaming pretty soon, so okay. I will probably check it out, but yeah. Yeah, it's disappointing to hear you say it. You might disagree, but yeah. I, I think it's a bit bog standard. It's a bit okay. bog standard, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that was Holy Spider, mm-hmm. you said. Uh, my number four, and this might be a bit of a controversial choice for people who've seen it, but it's uh, Peter von Kant, the new Francois Ozon film. Uh, it's a remake of a Fassbinder film, um, a Rainer Werner Fassbinder film, the great German filmmaker who you know made a ton of movies, and and I think he passed away at age thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, famous for being kind of like a, a no holds bar. Uh, filmmaker. He was gay at a time when it was not easy to be a, a, a gay filmmaker. And in fact, uh, this film, when it was originally filmed, featured a, a, a female cast, and it was about kind of a lesbian love triangle. Um, in the remake, um, it's kind of been gender flipped, so it's about a gay romance. Okay. Uh, about a, a director who kind of falls in love with this aspiring actor, and things kind of decline from there. The, the director becomes obsessive, his life kind of falls apart, and much like the original, it's very kind of theatrical. It almost feels like a filmed play. It's mostly stuck in one location. The original film had like super long takes because Fassbinder, he just made so many films. Mm. And I think his, his kind of modus operandi was to shoot as quickly as possible. So he filmed things in a lot of long takes, really sumptuous and, and interesting looking you know, uh, sets and, and uh, set designs, which the new film also features. But what's interesting about the new film is by switching the, the genders, he almost makes it uh, an autobiographical film or a biographical film, rather, on Fassbender himself mm-hmm. because the director really kind of resembles Fassbender. Uh, the actor uh, resembles uh, an actor that the director okay. famously actually did fall in love with. And apparently this did kind of, you know, haunt him his whole life. It did kind of, um, you know, lead him into a dark place in his own life. So the film functions not just as a remake of a Fassbender film, but a kind of mini biography of Fassbender himself. And so it's fascinating in that regard. And the use of music in in both is really cool. I mean, they use a lot of Scott Walker tracks. Uh, He's kind of this English singer-songwriter who made some really interesting sort of pop folk, dark pop folk songs in the 60s and 70s. So that's really cool. 
this movie, I, I like the original, but this one in particular just kind of felt sadder. Mm-hmm. And because I, I couldn't help but think about Fassbender himself and this kind of genius who died super young and, and seemed really kind of haunted in, in, in some ways. And so I, I guess I just enjoyed it on that level. Some people, I think probably a lot of people will see this and maybe be annoyed by how theatrical it is, uh, how stagey it is, mm-hmm. how claustrophobic it feels. But I enjoyed it. Um, it's also nice to to see, I think, one of the original actors in... Um, uh, I think the original is called The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. And uh, one of the original actors actually appears in this uh, okay. new film as in, in a cameo role. Um, I like Francois Ozone. I don't love all of his films, but uh, he's he's made a couple of really great ones I've seen, including France from a few years back. So I was am curious to see his film. Uh, his films. I should also say that I only saw this because Decision to Leave did not have subtitles, <laughs> and this movie happened to be playing half an hour after okay. Decision to Leave started. So I went to the theater and, and saw it. Okay. And um, yeah, I was impressed. Okay, I liked good. it. Yeah. What was your number four? My number four um, is a film that I know is much higher on your list. It's called Return to Soul. So ah, maybe yes. we'll park it. Yep. We'll talk about it when we get to it in your list. Sure. How about that? Sure. Right. Okay. Uh, well, my number three was Bardo, the new Inaritu film. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even realize that was here. Okay. Yes. Um, it will be appearing on Netflix pretty soon. Okay. It's around three hours. Okay. It's a very long film. And I think uh, the full title is like Bardo, a series of false chronicles or a chronicle of false stories. I, I okay. don't exactly remember, but we'll call it Bardo. And, uh, you know, if you've seen any Inaritu films, you know you're going to get something kind of epic. You're mm-hmm. going to get a lot of long takes with really wide-angle lenses, um, really, like, meticulously choreographed scenes and things like that. And this movie is is not only no different, but it just ups the ante in, in every way whatsoever. Uh, one thing I'll say about this movie, it's uneven. It's also a what little bit too long. What language is this film in? This is in, uh, in uh, Spanish. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, some of it's in English as okay. well. Um, and it's kind of about this, um, I think he's a theater director, or maybe he's a movie director in the movie, but um, an artist mm-hmm. who uh, kind of, you catch him in this weird moment where it, it almost seems like he's having a dream, but he never really comes out of it until a crucial point in the film. And you just kind of see him with his family. He's... Uh, He's in Mexico, but due to go back to L.A. to get an award, there's a certain amount of kind of, I guess, shame or conflict on his part because he kind of feels like he's abandoned Mexico and his people to kind of, as some people say, sell out to the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you know Inaritu and his career, you can kind of see there's yeah. a pretty big uh, autobiographical um, aspect to this. Um, it's pretty uneven. I mean, there are, there are parts of this movie where I, I felt really didn't land, but when it does land, like there's this extended dance hall sequence uh, shot in Mexico, it's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like it's just jaw dropping. The amount of choreography that's going on. I mean, he's shooting a lot of it in one take, and there's just you know hundreds of extras in this room. Uh, there's one moment where you know they have this super long take, this super well choreographed scene, and then. Um, all the sound goes out, and you just hear an a cappella version of Let's Dance by David Bowie. Right on. And right. somehow it just makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay. 
Um, this movie is also pretty moving, I think, when viewed as, as a whole. Um, I'm really glad I got to see it on the big screen because it's just gorgeous to look at. And uh, yeah, beautiful film all around. It really reminded me of Fellini, mm -hmm. especially Amacord and some of the kind of more biographical Fellini films. It has this magical realism quality that's really cool. Mm -hmm. The one thing I'll say, and I, I've been thinking about this ever since I've seen the movie, we're all used to this idea of the director's cut, right? Like a lot of directors uh, back in the day, um, and it happens now too, they'll make a movie, the studio cuts out some, some scenes they thought were important, and then, you know, years down the line, they get to release a, a special edition of it, the director's cut, and, you know, restore mm -hmm. some of those things that were cut out. Uh, seeing Bardo, I almost think we should have the opposite. Okay. All right. yeah. Where we take the director's vision that's too long and we make the, like, studio cut yeah. <laughs> where it's shorter. <laughs> because I think this movie is, is coming on the tail end of that Netflix trend where they just gave as much money yeah. as certain directors wanted to, to make their vision. Mm. And they kind of, you know, went all out and got a little excessive. Yeah. I really don't want to see, you know this disappear i think auteurs should get a lot of money to make films but i do think we've seen a tendency maybe with the irishman and with this mm. for you know they probably should yeah yeah um these movies i think could have used some trimming mm -hmm. and i'm i'm serious i think they should have a like a non-director's cut of this when you film. click on a netflix it asks you which one you want to watch yep. okay i'd just be very curious to see because i think this movie if it was two hours, maybe two and a half, um, would probably be a masterpiece. Mm. And I think because it has too much stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be there, some scenes that didn't quite work, it's not. Mm -hmm. So that was my number three. All right. Like, when you talk about the movie being too long, I found this more than any other year. And I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe I'm changing in some way. When I was looking up, okay, what films are on, I get tickets to this year. And I go through the program for the times that I'm available. If a film is like 153 minutes long, unless it's a specifically a director I really love or a film I really want to see, not doing I'm it. Not, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing yeah. it. I, 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 that's that's probably a negative. That probably means I'll miss out on some things. But I have a lot less patience for anything above two hours these days. Which do you do you have that? Yeah, I kind of take. I, I saw an interview with Wong Gar Wai where he's like, you know. Movie should be ninety minutes. <laughs> I kind of agree, yeah. and I yeah. I kind of agree with them too. Like when you when you see a movie that's really great, that's like two hours, three hours long, and you, you kind of like sit with this experience mm -hmm. and it builds to this great thing, you're like, yeah, so yeah. worth it. Yeah, sometimes totally justified. Yeah, but there's there's been enough times where I've sat through that movies that long and had the exact opposite experience mm -hmm. where it's like, oh my god. And Korean just cinema finish. specifically, I find Korean cinema they're all about twenty minutes too long. I'd yeah, say about yeah. 90 90 percent of Korean films are about twenty minutes longer than they need to be. Right, right. Which you know, be a bit more judicious with your editing. Like, yeah. But <laughs> exactly. you know, can't kill your darlings. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always tough. I'm editing a film right now. Okay. It's never easy. Yeah. Uh, to figure out what you need and what you don't need. Mm. Um. So I can sympathize, but uh, yeah, get your act together, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what was your number three? My number three um is a documentary that I kind of saw just because I was available and it was the only thing that was playing at the time that specifically worked for me. It was a documentary called After Passing Away, uh, a Taiwanese documentary about uh, 10 years in the making. The director's name is, I don't know the tones, but the director's name is Su Yu Ting. And it's a documentary 
about a Taiwanese man who has lived with his family and his whole life. He has a wife and two daughters, and they run a restaurant in a small town or a small city in Taiwan. And at one point, he decided he wanted to build a house. And he spent years studying that old Japanese wood house carpentry methods, like with the mortise and tenon, no screws, studying that kind of carpentry. Spent 10 years, bought the wood, you know, he buys the wood and it starts raining and termites get into the wood and they lose thousands of dollars in the wood. It starts like that. But the film, so I read the director's statement uh, before I saw the film and the director, she'd gotten married about 10 years ago and immediately, I don't know much about Taiwanese culture, but she felt a bit of a pressure to buy a house, buy an apartment, buy a house. Mm, That's how she started her married life. And she was going to meetings with real estate agents all in 30-minute blocks because that's what they would be scheduled for a real estate agent. And she realized she's being asked to part with 20, 30 years of a commitment, millions of dollars to buy an apartment at, I don't know how, she, how old she was, in her 20s, presumably. And she... Sounds like she kind of reacted negatively to that, like there's the idea of that being forced into this in a 30-minute time span. And she met this guy and he went the other way and so him and his family lived for years in an attic room above this restaurant this tiny restaurant in a small city in taiwan spent 10 years planning hand drawing all the blueprints which i have i've a bit of a history with going down youtube rabbit holes of people renovating houses (laughs) and um so i've got a bit of bit of form with this kind of thing uh but it's a very quiet very slight, very little kind of directorial hand, it seems like, in the whole thing. The early parts of the movie seems like they were filmed on, like, a home camera by the patriarch's daughter, and she's very young, oh, and she's yeah. got the camera trained on him, kind of in awe of how quickly he's moving these giant planks of lumber from one side of their warehouse to the other. They'd rented this little warehouse space. But it turns into this lovely little kind of community story of... he's doesn't have a lot of money he's building it all himself and he just some things he literally needs other hands for so he takes on apprentices takes on volunteers from the local community um there's all these blessings that come these these religious figures come in give these blessings to the construction and it's just a lovely fairly heartwarming simple story of just a, a a craftsman working to create his masterpiece, his house. Mm. And it, it does finish and he does build a house. The guy who wrote the book that he learned the carpentry method from visits from Japan and is very impressed with the, oh, what he's cool. done. And it's lovely, it's lovely. Um, so yeah, so that's my number three. It's okay. really nice, kind of very quiet. Again, it's like we talked about one of those films that I doubt I'll ever be able to see again, even if I wanted to. It's a festival exactly. film that um, I doubt will be on a streaming service or be picked up anywhere but if you find yourself with the opportunity to see it I'd recommend it it's maybe again it's a film that's two hours long maybe could could last 20 minutes maybe you know it's a documentary about a guy building a house it could last 20 minutes but there's lovely scenes of him sitting down with his wife who loves him and his daughter has been endlessly supportive they're going off getting jobs to help put money into the project um just no 
no negativity from it whatsoever. Just a lovely little documentary. So that's my number three. Yeah, and it's always nice um, when you see a film that you have no expectations mm. about and it just like really surprises you like in a good way. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Excellent. Um, I didn't really have any films like that this year, to be honest. Um, but my number two is Bones and All, the new mm-hmm. Luca Guadagnino film. Uh, of course, it's got Timothy Chalamet in it, Taylor <laughs> Russell, um, some big names. It's mm-hmm. it's going to be a, a, a pretty wide li- release, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked about it, it's about cannibalism. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of about this, this young girl who is a cannibal and she's kind of on the run um, because, of course, you know, once her dark secret comes out in the community she's in, her and her father have to kind of move to a new place and she has to kind of remain on the run and, and hide her, her true identity. She meets another cannibal and actually several other cannibals and discovers there's kind of this whole, you know, subculture or different world of, of cannibals kind of living a similar life to, she, uh, to the one that she does. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point she encounters Timothy Chalamet and they kind of, you know, have yeah, this... He looks like a cannibal, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. exactly. And it, it kind of becomes a road movie okay. at some point, um, kind of doomed lovers on the run. Um, I love Luca Guadagnino's style. Like mm-hmm. I, I have since I've seen A Bigger Splash. He just has an amazing way of filming uh, natural landscapes. Uh, he has an incredibly an evocative way of, of making period pieces. Like this movie, much like uh, Call Me By Your Name, like it just has this 80s feel to it that you can't replicate. I've seen a lot of movies that try to get at what the 80s were. Mm-hmm. And very few of them really achieve that, but he seems to conjure it mm-hmm. in a way that, that few other directors do. Um, and just like, there's something uncompromising about it too. It's a pretty gruesome movie. There, sure. there are definitely scenes where it's like disturbing. It's hard to watch, uh, but it's also really beautiful too. And I don't know, just his ability to kind of make us connect with these characters who are, you know, horrific in some way. I mean, they're cannibals, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and the way he kind of contextualizes this is like, okay, so what do you, what if, what do you do if you realize that, you know, you are kind of, um, you know, a horrible person in some ways, or if some aspect of you is just unbearable, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, there's kind of a line that I, I heard some people mention. It's mentioned in the film, and I watched some interviews where where people have referenced it, but uh, they said love, uh, love allows no monsters. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of the point of the movie is the exact opposite. Um, I can't help but mention as well. I mean, and I haven't really heard anyone talk about this, but the Army Hammer. I was going to say, I was going, I was, I was going to yeah. bring it up. I was going to say, hey, I'm going to wait till you finish talking so you can cut this out if I bring it up. Yeah, right. yeah, that's that's the first thing I thought of when I heard right. the premise. Yeah, right. That seems. You know, in like impossible to ignore as a as a as a. He worked at Army Hammer, and now it turns out Army Hammer might be a cannibal. Yeah, <laughs> the rumors at least made some crazy drug fueled, yeah. you know, texts saying he was. And it was long enough ago that this movie could have been conceived and filmed and released in that time. I don't know if this project was already in development. It's based off of a, has, a novel has, that must have been asked in a press conference. I haven't seen it yet. Any interview I've seen, it hasn't come up yet, okay. and it's probably something they're trying they're, to avoid. Yeah, they're talking about. Ask about yeah. But I can't help but wonder if some part of you know 
in, in Luca Guadagnino's head if, if he wasn't thinking like, okay, I made a movie starring an actor who did this. Mm-hmm. Like, let me reflect on that. Yeah. What that must be like being that person. And trying to that kind takes of... a level of empathy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I possess. Yeah. <laughs> I know? mean, it's an interesting, I guess, artistic thing to yeah. do. Um, to try to contextualize it because he doesn't shy away from how horrific mm-hmm. that is. I mean, there are, there are still scenes in that movie that I think back to now and I'm like, oof, it's really hard to watch. Yeah. Um, to the point where it almost made me not want to like the movie or rank the movie as high as I did. Okay. Um, but I think it's his ability to kind of conjure a time and, and a place and kind of make us feel for characters that really are just almost beyond the pale mm-hmm. uh, without it feeling like like he crossed a line or, or gross or exploitive or, you know, whatever other pejorative you want to use, mm-hmm. um, which is really impressive to me. Uh, plus, like, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the soundtrack. Oh, they did the soundtrack. Yeah, and I love them. They like, can't miss. They, they can't, can't miss. miss. I still listen to the Social Network soundtrack as just an album. Me like, too. It's just a great, great album. I have a playlist of of just their soundtrack work yeah. that I listen to. Like them and Johnny Greenwood, as far mm. as I'm concerned, they can do no wrong. Yeah. And so that's fantastic. And, um, you know, Luca's really great at just choosing, um, like, pop music from the era mm. and, and putting it into uh, his films. I mean, he did that in a, in a fantastic way with um call me by Call your name, name yeah. yeah and uh i love suspiria um so i'm just a big fan of his now in general mm-hmm. i think uh the way he shoots his movies the way he portrays characters um on the big screen i i, I love it i've actually only seen call, call me by your name what's, okay. the ne- what's the next one i shall watch suspiria yeah it's halloween's around the corner yeah that's true actually corner, yeah, so yeah just watch yeah. suspiria it's yeah. totally different from the original yeah. um it has a tom york soundtrack which yeah. is incredible so. i've heard the soundtrack yeah, yeah but i haven't seen the movie yeah mm. check it out i will what's your number two my number two so before i introduce my top two um uh, anyone who's listening who doesn't know me probably knows at this stage that i am an irish gentleman and the fact that my top two films are irish films is mostly coincidental <laughs> i am more likely to see a film at the festival because it's irish you know naturally you know if, totally if, understandable if it is not not very often an irish film comes through the busan international film festival Something um, we don't get enough of in this podcast is unabashed Irish, Irish propaganda. <laughs> so it's about time. You're going to get it here, boy. All right. Uh, so my number two film, um, which I assumed would be my number number one film until I saw the film that is number one, uh, is The Banshees of Inish Aaron. Mm. Um, the new film from Martin McDonough, who gave us In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, and Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and a bunch of plays also. He was a playwright before he was a filmmaker. Uh, have you seen any of, have you seen those films? Have you seen, uh, yeah, you I've seen? seen in Bruges, I've in seen Bruges. three billboards. Yeah. Um, I think those are the only two of his I've seen. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, in Bruges is a film that I adore. It might be my top 10 films of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. Uh, so, so the Banshees of Inish Aaron, uh, which interestingly, Inish Aaron is literally means the island of Ireland in mm. Irish. So it's not a real island. It was filmed on two real islands off the west coast of Ireland. But Inish Aaron is not a real island. Mm-hmm. But the two central characters, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, are back together for the first time since In Bruges. Um, and at 2pm every day, 
Colin Farrell's character, Porrick, uh, walks down. It's set during the Civil War, during the 1920s in Ireland, just to give you a time period. Uh, walks down to Colm's house, Brendan Gleeson's house, and they walk up to the pub together and have a pint. And it seems like that's been the tradition for many years. We meet Colm, or sorry, we meet Porrick, Colin Farrell's character. Big smile on his face, heading down to meet his friend and go to the pub for a few pints. He goes there, he knocks on the window, he can see Colm sitting inside, he knocks on the window. And Colm just sits there smoking a cigarette, just ignores him completely. So Porrick goes, oh, okay, I guess he's busy. Walks up to the pub. Doesn't, Colin doesn't show up, walks back down. And Colin tells Porrick, Brenda Gleeson tells Colin Farrell that I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I'm sick of you. I'm sick of your inane chatter. Says you spent an hour the other day telling me about the stuff you found in your donkey's shite. <laughs> He's just sick of him. He wants to devote his time, devote his mind to more, to more scholarly pursuits. He wants to write an air for the fiddle, for the violin. And he just doesn't want to be listening to Porrick's nonsense anymore so that's the premise of the film so it goes from there it's a really dark film it's kind of just morality play which is the most i would say the most theatrical the most stagey of mark mcdonald's films because he is mainly known as a playwright like before he was a filmmaker he was a renowned playwright plays on broadway west end everything so it's definitely the most theatrical in as much as it could be a two-hander on stage Secondary characters are important to the film, but they could be removed and another story could be written. It is a beautiful, wild, dark, disturbing film. Um, it, so the backdrop of the Civil War. So it's set during the Civil War in Ireland, which happened in like, uh, I won't go into the history too much. 1920s was the Civil War. Mm-hmm. They live in this island, this rugged island that seems untouched by the 20th century completely. It's all horse and cart. Everybody walks everywhere. Everybody's a farmer. That's the life on this island, which is true to islands off the West Coast. Kind of even today, almost. They all kind of remain fairly unmodernized. And they just hear and see cannon fire and rifle fire across the bay on the mainland. But nobody really knows really what they're fighting about. They don't even know who the both sides are. There's one of the characters is the local policeman, Singular, um, who's kind of an antagonist to Colin Farrell's character. And at one point he's offered money to go oversee some executions on the mainland. And he's just excited and he doesn't know who's executing who. He doesn't know which side everybody's on. Uh, So that's the kind of the setting of the whole thing. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson career best performances i would say among oh, wow. them at least and you know those guys especially Brendan gleason has put in some pretty great performances in his career yeah um but it's fantastic it's it's a really really uh arresting stuck with me for a while after the film uh beautiful yeah adjectives lots of good adjectives hmm. um yeah that's what i'll say about it um what do you think the movie was was about or why do you think it was made now um, I think, guess. well, it's, it's kind of goes back to something you mentioned earlier, but division, I think there's definitely intentional parallels between the civil war that's raging on the mainland and the breakdown of society that's happening in that way. Yeah. And the breakdown of this fraternal relationship between these two longtime friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be the main theme, if anything is a theme. 
Um, it kind of, like all of his films, kind of allow you to, like the theme is almost a different genre to what the film is. Like in Bruges, you saw in Bruges. Yep. Very much pitched marketing-wise as a comedy film. But it's it's almost like a, a love story between these two guys. It's like kind of platonic love story. Yep. These guys who don't really know each other very well and they're shipped off to Bruges because of, you know, an assassination went wrong. And it's them kind of falling in love with each, love with each other in a platonic way. And this film is the opposite of that. Mm. Like the polar opposite of that. Um, so I'd say that's the theme of anything. Just kind of breakdown of relationships and subsequently society. And the society that these guys know is that very small insular island life. There's these nice little touches of the time period where the kind of thing that would be missed, I think, by a lot of audiences. At one point, there's a there's a, like a, a gossip-hungry local shopkeeper, which is just the most stereotypical Irish character ever, is a gossip-hungry local shopkeeper. And they've there's a red post box in the shop, and she's painting it green while she just stands there talking about something, which that's something that happened at the time. The red phone boxes of King George were repainted green of the <laughs> Irish Free State when we became yeah. an independent nation. And some of those post boxes are still there on the streets in Ireland. They still have the emblem of King George on them. Oh, yeah. But yeah. they just painted them green and they're still there 100 years later. Um, so there's those little details like that. Um, but yeah, I said that's, I've kind of gone mealy-mouthed on that there. But I'd say that's the main theme, yeah. No, I really wanted to see it. and, and uh... It's hard to get a ticket for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was just a, a few days where you know it was pretty stacked in terms of the the big films that yeah. were showing, and I also knew it would be released later. Sure, yeah, exactly. It's one of those films, yeah. But no, nah, it's a lot of great insight you provided there because you know it, it's got to be a totally different viewing experience for you as opposed to someone who's not really that familiar with the history. Yeah, a little bit. I think again, the history is very much in the background, but if you know about that history, it kind of allows you to draw parallels between the story on the screen and the story that's happening in the background. Um, and yeah, like a quick mention of uh, Barry Keoghan, who is now probably best known for, he was the Joker in the new Batman film. He's that guy. He's also in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Killing of a Sacred Deer, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's in it and he plays kind of like so Colin Farrell is kind of the simpleton in the relationship between Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell's character. And Barry Keoghan is the simpleton in relation to Colin Farrell. And Kerry Condon is in it, who uh, she, what was she in? Um, she was in Better Call Saul on a television level, mm. if you watch that. Yep. Um, but yeah, the supporting, supporting cast is great. There's two supporting actors, uh, Pat Short, who was in... A, gr- a film I can really recommend, which I'm guessing you haven't seen because it wasn't, they've got no audience outside of Ireland really, a film called Garage. Uh, mm. And he was here for the film festival several years ago. There was a bit of a focus on Irish film at the film festival in 2015, possibly. Oh, okay. Um, so he was here for that. And he plays the bartender of the local bar and as a bar fly. And the two of them... It's the first time I think they've ever been together since in the 90s when I was a child... The two of them toured Ireland, toured rural Ireland as a comedy duo called The Unbelievables, like D apostrophe Unbelievables. And their whole thing was affectionate lampooning of rural Ireland. Yes. And to sort of see them back on screen together in these roles that they would have played when I saw them several times as a rural Irish child in the 90s. Yeah. 
getting to see it in my thought was great. It was nice. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to see it. And uh, the theme sounds pretty, pretty topical and important, I think, as well. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Well, let's get to uh, our number one choices. <laughs> now, before you mentioned, what was it? Number four was... Uh, Return to Soul. Return to Soul. Yes. That's my number one. It's the new film by Cambodian French director Davy Cho. Uh, I've seen a few of his films at previous Biffs before. Oh, okay. I haven't seen any of them. Uh, including Diamond Island, which is a, a movie filmed in Cambodia. It was my favorite film at the 2017 Biff. Um, I think it was my favorite film. It was definitely one of them. Uh, I, I really loved it. Um, and I think he has an incredible ability, I guess maybe because of his background, of kind of blending a European sensibility mm. with kind of specifically issues that are germane to, to Asia. And he, did, he does this in spades in, um, in Return to Soul. It's about a... French Korean woman who returns to Seoul kind of on a whim. I think mm. she's planning on going to Japan. Her flight is like rerouted. a flight got rerouted, yeah. Yeah. And she ends up in Seoul. She has no real desire or plan to see her biological parents or meet them, but she ends up kind of trying to track them down. Mm. It goes on from there. It's pretty obvious from the early scenes in the film that she's a bit kind of wild. Mm. She's not, you know, doesn't really fit the mold of a typical Korean woman, um, particularly in society today. And it just kind of goes on from there into this incredibly interesting and moving and and powerful um, tale. Mm. And a few things I loved about it, I think number one is the style. I think Davy Cho has this incredible ability to, A, shoot things in a way that just feels a little different. uh, and the style changes fairly dramatically from scene yes. to scene sometimes. Yep. And one thing I was thinking as I was watching it was, I could probably pick five stills from this film, all of which feature the main actress, and you would assume they're five different films that, I, <laughs> that that actress had been in. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, I think he he has this ability to kind of film a place in a, in a slightly dreamlike way. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't totally feel realistic, but yet it's grounded in something real. Like, there's, you can tell that Davy Cho has been to Korea, has been to Seoul, has met or been in situations like the ones portrayed in the film. I love the um, kind of drinking customs in a restaurant or very, we've been there, bewildering, and it's very, very well observed. Bewildering drinking games. The and translations. Like, yeah. yeah, a lot of lost in translation moments. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of cultural curiosities that, you know, seem really kind of off the wall in the moment. Mm. And all of this is portrayed very well. I mean, in terms of kind of an outsider's lens on Korea, um, he does this, he portrays that very well. And I think his use of music is also something I really, really admire. He uses a lot of music by Shin Jung-hyun, who's kind of this uh, rock and roll folk guy in the 60s and 70s. Uh, incidentally enough, I think he was the first major Korean celebrity who was arrested for marijuana possession. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, because he used to be pretty popular in the university scene in Seoul, oh, yeah. and he was kind of arrested as an example. There was kind of an interesting article about that not too long ago, but um, his music is kind of uh, psychedelic, and it just really it, it creates a really kind of powerful mood. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really seen his music featured very much in 
in film before. And so I thought it was the perfect soundtrack for this. Um, he also works with a, a, a French composer as well uh, for some of the instrumental music in this. And that's also really, really good. It's just really creative. Um, I would say, I mean, it would be hard to imagine. I, I still have yet to see Decision to Leave uh, or Broker yet. Um, but I would imagine this is the best film shot in Korea this year. Okay. That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, because, I don't know, he manages to kind of convey Korean society in a way that I think steps outside of the bubble of Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm really appreciative of that, of someone who lives here. Um, I think too often you see kind of movies made here that kind of never really reflect enough on Korea sure. and, and yeah. Koreanness and stuff like that. So that was really refreshing. I think also the performance by Park Ji Min. Yeah, is she was great. Yeah. Fantastic. It's her first role. She's yeah. never acted before. She's a, a visual artist, I think. Oh, sure. Um, and apparently, um, David Cho based this story because he also wrote it um, off of a real experience. Uh, he had a, a friend in France who was also French Korean. And when he went to the first, uh, his first time coming to the Busan International Film Festival, I think it was for his film Golden Slumbers. Um, I think I remember that one, yeah. It was really good as well. But she wanted to come with him while he was there. And um, she just kind of wanted to see Korea. And so while she was there, she decided to meet up with her biological parents and invited him to come along. And I think they went to Jeonju or Kyungju, I can't remember which. He, he talked about this in the Q&A. But he said, like, a lot of the stuff in the movie, the, the kind of awkward encounter, the, uh, the weird kind of emotional back and forth that, you know, uh, the actress in the movie uh, experiences, he saw firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so he, he kind of took that and, and made this movie about kind of not exactly knowing how to situate yourself in the world, you know, as I think the main driving force of this film is in, you know, a, a character who's just really unsure exactly of where she comes from mm-hmm. and where she fits in in the world and really, like, searching for something. Um, the original title of this film is All the People, I think it's All the People You Will Never Be, I think which is kind of an allusion to the fact that she's really just trying on all these different personas. I think that's a better title. Yeah, it wasn't his choice, actually, <laughs> okay. to call it Return to Solo. It was Sony's. Okay, uh, They kind of forced him to change that because I think they wanted something Korean in the okay. title to kind of suggest that. Um, but I thought that was really powerful, how he did that. Um, aesthetically, how he portrayed it, there are scenes in the movie, there's a, a scene in a nightclub, which is just, just really interesting and beautifully done. Yeah. But also just like, you know, you know a character is well done and well written and well portrayed when you don't know what they should do either, you know? And seeing this person mm. just like wrestle with this thing inside of her where you can tell there's this restlessness and this anger and this hurt. She doesn't know what to do with it. And a lot of times, especially early on in the film, she's not in control. She thinks she is, Mm -hmm. you know, even when she first goes to Seoul and she's like, I'm not going to see my biological parents. I don't care. She goes to see them. And there's a scene later on where she uh, she has this French 
boyfriend and she's going back to Seoul, presumably from France. And she seems much more grounded. She's meditating. It seems like she's in a stable relationship. And there's one point in the film where just something happens. They have dinner with her biological father. Where she's in the car and she says to him, that's the moment where I was like, I don't know about this movie, man. This really? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. When well, let's tell them the line. The line oh, is... It was, uh, I could... I could cut you out of my life with a click of my fingers. Something yes. like that wasn't it was uh, along those lines. Yeah, something like uh yeah, I could I could cut you out of my life with a snap of my yeah. fingers. Which the boyfriend, you know, seems fairly benign, like he's fairly harmless. Oh, he seems like a, a nice yeah, guy. Yeah, a decent dude. Yeah. And then the next scene is her waking up on a street. Hung over on a street. Yeah. That's the moment where I was like, I don't I'm not I'm not here for this ride, you know. Okay, I'm why? Not, I didn't get it. I didn't get why she would do that. I didn't I feel I've spent long enough with this character. I felt like I, all the things you said about her not knowing who she was, trying out these different kind of hats. Like when you meet her, she's in a restaurant and she's the person who gets tables of strangers together and introduces people. And she's that Which person. Which in Korean society is like, that's oh, not yeah, something yeah, yeah. you do. Yeah, I was laughing watching that. Absolutely. To the kind of shy, not shy, but um, um, closed off person that meets her dad, spends a couple of days with her dad or her biological dad. To this fucking arms dealer, bizarrely out of nowhere. <laughs> really like, interesting turn. Yeah, exactly. And so when when the arms dealer stuff happened, I was like, "Huh, okay." I'm not sure if I get this. I'm not sure if I get this turn really. And then when they're in the taxi, and she says, "I says to her boyfriend, who seems like you know, all impressions are it's a long kind of fairly healthy relationship." And she says to this guy, "Who cut you out of my life with a click of my fingers?" I don't, I don't get this character anymore. I don't. That's I kind, kind of lost me there a little bit. See, for me, it, I saw her more kind of in the vein of someone like Freddie Quell from The Master. Mm-hmm. You know, very different set of problems. Okay, but there's something very self-destructive yeah. about them, and there's. But I kind of I don't believe because we've seen an evening of that relationship. I don't believe that. A relationship can be seemingly, from what we've seen, a healthy, good relationship. He doesn't seem to have, her boyfriend doesn't seem to have any uh, uh, desire to tiptoe around things he says, that she would have this reaction to anything ever, and then all of a sudden they're in a taxi. By the way, not wearing a mask, which really messed with me, because it's the first feature (laughs) film I've seen where people wear masks, then they get into the taxi, and so, and they take the mask off. No. Not having it. But anyway, yeah. I've um, seen that happen, actually. But oh really? Okay. Yeah. Um, um that's I'm mainly joking about that. But the that as a character development I didn't buy. I didn't I, I, I couldn't go along with it. See, I think that was exactly what had to happen in that right. film. Because I think the the suggestion is this is a pattern in her life where she gets herself into these sorts of situations. Um, you know, initially it's with her parents. Where it's like, hey, we love you. Why aren't you? Do you telling think it's us? because she's in Seoul? Because like, I think that the city has an effect on her. Like clearly, it seems throughout the film. Well, she she says that earlier on to her boyfriend, where it's like, this place is like a poison to me, and I'm glad you're that's here. Right, yeah. And I think that's part of it. But I think part of it too is she's trying to figure out what this kind of demon inside of her is. That just like any time someone offers her stability and kind of like. Uh, an attempt at closure, I guess, in her life. She wants to throw it away and destroy it. And I get—I think it makes sense when 
when you're not really sure who you are, where you came from, uh, I mean, that kind of heartbreaking subplot with her mother, mm-hmm. where it doesn't really seem like her mom wants to yeah. really reconnect with her. And I could imagine, you know, obviously I'm just guessing here because I haven't had this experience, but I, I'm guessing if you've kind of felt like you've been rejected, then you're going to feel empowered when you can reject others, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's just something really deep inside of her that just cannot accept it and almost gets like angry and resentful when someone is like, you know what, I'm going to be the one who's going to help you settle down and find peace and closure in your life. And she's like, yeah, no, fuck Mm -hmm. you. You're not, you're not going to be that person. I decide. Yeah. And that's kind of what we needed to see a little more of their relationship for that to hit the way I think it was intended to, to have the kind of emotional punch that it should have had. For me, I felt like enough of a pattern of behavior had been established with the way that she behaved towards other people that, again, I was expecting that she would be happy and that this would kind of be their, her off ramp Mm. for this type of behavior. And possibly also because I find that very compelling in general, like with movies like The Master, but also like I've seen this happen to people Mm -hmm. in my life where it's like, They've struggled with something, whether it's addiction or just bad habits, uh, you know, patterns of bad behavior, you know, and you see them start to change and then they fall back into it. Yeah. And that's life to me. Mm -hmm. That seems much more realistic. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. You're making good points. I mean, another thing that I think was I, I, I went to see it and randomly a friend of mine was also going to see the same film. So we had a couple of beers afterwards and talked about it. And I think something we both were talking about was like, it does have this fantastic, I think I'd have really liked was there's at a certain point there's a big time jump. Yep. And when that happened, I kind of got a big, like, I don't know what this movie is anymore. And that's good. Cause for the first, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes of the movie, it was kind of a fish out of water story in a lot of yep. ways, kind of a comedy fish out of water story, which, you know, we've, it's been done we've seen it all and but like as someone who lives in korea and the experience experiences she was going through i think there's some entertainment to be had on our part from that um so i kind of liked that they changed from that that there was a big genre shift and then everything was filmed completely differently as soon as the time jump time jump happens she's got dark red lipstick on and she's dressed in a leather trench coat in a fancy hotel um I liked those shifts, but I maybe it spends too long in that first segment that everything else is kind of too abbreviated. Mm. Maybe like it doesn't feel as much like a, a, a zoomed out overview of a person's adult life and this this journey of discovery than it does. Here's half of this film, and then twenty minutes of two of three other films. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Which I don't know. I'm not. I'm not saying this is the right perspective, but I, that's what I kind of walked away from the film thinking. And again, it's my number four film. I didn't dislike it. Yeah, I liked it well enough. But yeah, I kind of, those are my problems with it. I think those are valid points. And and the the arms dealer subplot is also still kind of bizarre. Yeah, she's five years later, and suddenly she's shaggy an arms dealer out of nowhere, yeah. and then she is an arms dealer. What's right. that? You know? Yeah, yeah. It was a little perplexing. 
I will say, like, just as a final thought, um, I went to a screening that had a guest visit. Okay. With uh, with Park Ji Min, David Cho, one of the actors. A couple of interesting things from that. Okay, uh, good. Number that. one, Park Ji Min's biological father, because I believe she was also adopted, was in the audience. Oh, wow. And uh, wow. he actually asked a question. <laughs> and it was weird because I saw this guy who had on like a headband, kind of reminiscent of Christopher Walken in The Deer Hunter. <laughs> and he was like holding a piece of paper and he seemed a little bit incoherent. He was also quite old. Okay. So I was just like, who is this guy? Uh, you know? And so um, pull out a revolver and challenge her to a game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that was a little. Uh, wow. perplexing at first what did he ask well uh that's the interesting thing when he when it was finally translated it's like he he said he was her biological father he thanked the director uh, for making the film and he said i've written you a handwritten letter in english um could you please read it on stage that seems that's very there's a lot of parallels there with the with the movie yeah and uh it was a very sweet letter yeah um he said he wrote it on the train ride down wow um so that was really interesting i will also say too like was it was 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 it clear what their relationship was not really i I mean like it was it was definitely a surprise to us that he was there i I think she was expecting him to be there um imagine if she wasn't i know (laughs) and i did wonder about that but just her reaction it seemed like she was expecting it um i don't know i i wouldn't want to guess Um, I will say as, as people, and I've seen quite a few guest visits, they were some of the coolest people okay. I've seen. Uh, they can be very dry at this film festival, those, those guest visits. Well, and they sometimes. can be very evasive too. Yeah. You know, some people are shy. Some people mm-hmm. don't want to stick around and, and meet people and, you know, um, or some people just don't really have the time for it. And there can be some subpar questions also. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We've de- we've all seen some of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, this time around, the questions were really good. Okay. It was obvious that the so audience... So what, what else did you learn from the, from the Q&A? I'm um, well, he said, like, uh, he talked a little bit about the music. That was yeah. one thing. Cause someone asked him about that. Um, it seems to be from what I was hearing, because I, I know what I know about Korean music, I could write on a, the back of a stamp. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like there was a lot of different decades of Korean music were represented on the soundtrack, from what I could hear. Is that... I think it was mostly, like, I'm, I'm going to say 60s to 80s, okay. uh, based on the music that I'm aware of. There's this one great Shin Jung-hyun album, um, which uh, is a compilation of some of his work. Uh, there's also a singer named Kim Jung-mi, or Jung-mi who uh, features, uh, collaborates with him as well. Um, so some of their work is, is in the movie. Um, and yeah, just kind of some questions like more about, you know, how he kind of, I guess, created this vision of a country that he wasn't, he didn't grow up in, mm. you know, and how he was kind of able to accurately portray Korea or at least being in Korea, arriving in Korea as an outsider. And so he kind of talked about some of the things I've already mentioned about where the inspiration for this story came from, uh, but also his own background, you know, as, uh, as the son of, of Cambodian uh, parents who immigrated to, to Paris mm-hmm. and, and what it was like growing up there. Um, so, yeah, that, w- that was part of it. I think there was also, like, um, some research that went into the film as well. But after the guest visit finished, because they kind of ran out of time, he basically said, the moderator said, listen, these are the official rules of what we're supposed to do. We're all supposed to leave the theater and stuff like that. 
we're going to go out in the lobby. So if you want to come and talk to us, just come and talk to us. And I'll say two things about that. First of all, Park Ji Min is one of the coolest people I met because she was just (laughs) surrounded by people who wanted to talk to her. And every single person who came up, she wanted to have a long conversation with them. She was not shooing anyone away. She was like, when I was there, I was like, A, kind of nervous. It's going to be wild. Like your first time ever acting. And then suddenly people are thronging you in a theater hallway. Well, I asked her for her autograph. And she's like, well, I'm not sure this is going to be worth anything. But here it is anyways. (laughs) And then I'm like, listen, I know there's a lot of people waiting. I just wanted to say, you know, great job. And she was basically like, wait, where are you from? What do you do here? Like she wanted to talk more. Mm. And that was really impressive. Uh, And then just Davey Cho himself. Like he was in the lobby... I could tell some of his team were kind of around there waiting. And they're like, when can we go to the <laughs> party, you know? And he was taking his time with everyone. There was a guy who knew some people, I think, in Cambodia or France that he knew as well. And he's like, oh, let's get a picture together. You know, this guy. And um, just a very sweet, down-to-earth guy. And, um, you know, I always have more sympathy for a movie if the people making it are really cool. Mm-hmm. It helps a lot if the movie's also great. Yeah. So just Davy Cho for me as a filmmaker, um, I think is one to watch, and I can't. You wait do meet for a lot of not very cool people at these yes. at these festivals, like people who yeah. are have no self awareness whatsoever, or so you meet snobs. Yeah, I mean, there's just yeah. all sorts of different people. You so meet. when you meet the cool people, that's 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 pretty that's pretty nice. And he kind of has every right to be a bit of a snob. I'm sure, sorry, yeah, like, yeah, but he yeah. he wasn't. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Davy Cho deserves a lot of support, and mm. I, I hope this movie does well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, what was your number one? Uh, my number one is an Irish film. Um, it's called The Quiet Girl, um, which it's an Irish language film, which I'm sure the only Irish language film that's ever played at Biff. There are There is some English in there, which I'll talk about later. Uh, but it's a very, very slight Irish language film, like no budget, I think, um, about a young girl, the titular quiet girl, who comes from a like a bad family situation uh, in I think it, it's not really I don't really mention I think it's in Donegal, which is in North Ireland, but not Northern Ireland. It's in the northern section of the Republic, and she's got a an uh, I'd say abusive father, not physically abusive as far as we can see, but a very emotionally absent, distant father. Got five, four or five siblings at home. There's another sibling on the way very quiet, shy, gets bullied at school, all of this. And she's sent, there's a new baby on the way, so the family seems to want to just get her out of their her, their hair for a summer. Just She's seen as kind of an imposition, just a nuisance. She's shipped off to her mother's cousins in Waterford, in an Irish-speaking area in Waterford, in the south coast, near where I'm from. And she gets there, and it's uh, set during the early 80s in Ireland, when Ireland was kind of in the transition between being a primarily agricultural country into being kind of the modern economy it is today. Uh, So agriculture still would have been probably the primary employment in the country. So her dad and her family has a farm that seems to not be doing very well. They drive down the three and a half hour drive, which three and a half hours is a long drive in the country of Ireland. That's about as far as you can drive in one direction without driving off a cliff. (laughs) Um, So they drive down her and her dad and he's like, have having put a bet on a match he's listening to on the radio and he's getting angry about that uh crucially he speaks english he's the only character in the movie that speaks english who kind of others him a lot more even than his behavior does 
But they drive down to Waterford. They meet her mother's cousins. The mother is almost comically lovely, really, is just the nicest woman in the world. They're also farmers, have a much more successful farm than their family has. But she arrives, is very shy. Like, is this nine, she's nine, year old, nine years old, the character. I'm not sure how old the actress is. Definitely 13 or below is amazing. Catherine Clinch is her name. Colin Barade is the director. Mm. Uh, Catherine Clinch is a young girl's name. Her first acting role also. An absolute revelation. Just, she has fewer, I mentioned something similar in my review that I wrote about it. She probably has fewer lines of dialogue in the movie than I have spoken already talking about this film. <laughs> it's mostly just her being quiet on screen. And she does so much. So it's not just a clever title then. No, no, she is. She is. She's earned the title of The Quiet Girl. Absolutely. Um, And it's her finding love, familial love in a place that she never knew that she could get in a place that she wouldn't have expected to get. Mm. She's just there for the summer and she kind of comes out of her shell. It's that. It's one of those stories. Someone coming out of her shell, kind of a bit of a coming of age story. Uh, But it is just one of the most beautiful understated quiet both in title and in manner films i've ever seen i was blown away by it i'd not heard about it because it had been mentioned in irish media a lot because it's an irish language film had won a couple of a bunch of awards in ireland and a couple of smaller awards at other film festivals Um, i think it won an audience award at a taiwanese film festival just before it came here um but it's a film where you know, one of these films that by the end of it, there's a moment near the end of the film where it seemed like something bad had just happened or is about to happen to her. And I found myself sitting in the theatre, just, oh, please, please, please be okay. Please be okay. Like, just yeah. purely as a human. I, I'd forgotten yeah. that I was there as a film viewer, that I was there as a quote-unquote reviewer. I was just there as a person watching this story, just completely enraptured by it. it it's beautifully shot, very... There's a lot of focus on the things. It's very much her POV. Things that she's noticing in the environment. So it'll be a few seconds lingering on like an ashtray in the car as her father chain smokes cigarettes on the way home. On like a little cookie on a table. A little nicety she wouldn't have had in her regular life. It's filmed in the Academy ratio, which is uh, yes. very close to 4 by 3 yep. which is evocative of the era there's lots of very period appropriate stuff on television in the background from the 80s in ireland um which is not that significant and i think it's a film that aside from the explicit lack of modern technology and modern vehicles could be told in any time period it doesn't lean into the period aspect of it it's just kind of to simplify the story as much as anything else it's based on a short story the author of which name escapes me right now but it's based on a short story called foster i remember the title of, of, the, of the story okay but it's a very simple film like it's it's hard to write or talk too much about the the themes everything it's the themes you can figure out just basically from what i've said it's about family it's about love it's about finding love in places that children find love in places they hadn't had it before but it's just the most beautifully told I forgot where I was for 90 minutes, honestly. And it's a short 90 minutes also. Like, oh, yes. I think key, you know, it's 90 minutes long. <laughs> very important. It says what it needs to say. Gets out of there. It's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. If you could compare it to another film, um, 
what would you say it's like I'm hearing it I'm I'm thinking something like Tess the Polanski oh, I never film Tess. Um, yeah anything else that comes to mind hmm good question um hmm no nothing that jumps to mind really okay you and know? maybe it isn't like anything else yeah it probably it probably is and I'm just I'm just being a dumb dumb I can't think of something <laughs> but it's gorgeous. I'd recommend it to literally anyone. Um, you could tell the Korean audience was very, very invested in it. Like, there was hardly a dry eye in the house by the end. Yeah. And also, you know, selfishly, it's kind of nice to see the Irish language being represented on screen. I remember yeah. seeing, I'd say, three, four years ago, there was a movie called Black 47 at the festival, which I don't, I don't know if you saw. It's a, a film set during the famine in Ireland. And there was a few little lines of Irish language dialogue some of which were very, very short. It was mostly told in English, but there was a few exclamations in Irish. And I remember at the time watching it with the Korean subtitles, and there was English subtitles for some of the Irish language dialogue, but there was a few of the sh- small things that are shouted that weren't subtitled. At one point, someone shouts, Oslanduris, which means open, open the door, and it wasn't <laughs> subtitled. I got to sit in the theater and go, I know what he said. I'm the only person <laughs> in this room that knows he just told that person to open the door. Yeah. So, but it was nice to see a little bit of Irish language in theaters. You know, it's a dying language. It's, you know, all jokes aside, it is it is important that it remains represented in media and this film has done has done a fantastic job of that. Excellent. Um, yeah, so that's what I have to say. Many. It's kind of the same way I, I feel when, uh, when the Trailer Park Boys became popular. <laughs> it's like, yes, finally, like my part of the world, you know. <laughs> What's that other kind of similar show, that kind of uh, Letterkenny? Is that what it's called? Ah, I'm not. If it is, I haven't seen it. Okay, right. I think it's it's got the same vibe. It's kind of very Canadian. I think more Nova Scotia. Yeah. Because I remember seeing because there's a place in Ireland called Letterkenny, and I saw the TV show. I was like, oh, there's a TV show (laughs) set in Letterkenny in Kildare. I think it is. No, it's Letterkenny in Nova Scotia. Oh wow. Um, but yeah, The Quiet Girl. I. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. Awesome. like, I'd say, I, I put it as my number one film. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a better film than The Banshees of Venice Um There's much less of a, you know, an artistic, an auteur kind of feeling to the film. But just, it was my favorite. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's the best film I saw at the festival, but it's my favorite. The one that I got the most out of in the immediacy. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the fun of going to festivals. Mm. You know, um, you're... You're kind of forced, I guess, initially to, to watch these films you may not have otherwise have seen. Mm. And you're very happy you did, you know, afterwards. And you just get this, like, you know, barrage of films for, like, a week. And then you have to digest it over the, the next few weeks and catch up in your sleep and all, and all that sort of And the insane analysis of you get the program and you got to pick the films. Because yes. in every time slot, there's 15 films playing. you got to pick the ones you're going to see. Absolutely. And and there's a ton that you don't get to see or, you know, don't get to, to talk about. I mean, I, just a couple of honorable mentions mm-hmm. I wanted to mention. White Noise, the Noah Baumbach the film. Obama, yeah. Um, I must confess, like I, I was, was going to see it, but I'm like, it's probably going to be on Netflix in like a month. It's right? coming it's, soon. It's Netflix, Netflix funded it right as well. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Uh, you know, based on the Don DeLillo novel, um, I got to confess, I had played a. Oh my god, show. is it based on the Don DeLillo novel? Yeah, you didn't I didn't know even that? know. I've read the novel. I didn't even make that connection. Okay, I really? Didn't know that. Okay, all right, all right, okay. Well, I I had played a show uh, the night before, and I was up pretty late because I play guitar uh, occasionally, very occasionally. And He's an um, excellent guitar player, listeners. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> if but, you're not in uh, Busan, you're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nevertheless, um, 
I, yeah, I was out pretty late. I was already like super tired and uh, had to wake up for a 9 a.m. screening of Triangle of Sadness. Uh, I was seeing three other films that day. I'd, I'd gone to an event in the afternoon. And by the time I went to the 8 p.m. screening, Wait, of you White went Noise, to the 9 a.m. screening? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. I kind of gave up on buying those tickets a long time oh, ago. Oh no, no, <laughs> I uh, I had to be there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, by the time I got to the 8 p.m. screening of White Noise, I was like pretty wiped, and I did kind of, you know, nod off during a couple parts. But I, based on what other people have said, other people I've talked to have seen it said, it is a bizarre mix of things. Mm. You know, it it is kind of a satirical comedy. It, it's almost reminiscent of like a National Lampoon's movie at some point. Okay. Because it has this 80s family comedy uh, aspect, but it also has the novel's, like, sense of existential dread mm. and, like, kind of, like, postmodernism gone awry sort of thing. Uh, so that's worth seeing. Uh, the new film by... I, I believe his name is Christian Mung- Mungu. Uh, he made... Um, what is it? Uh Four months, three weeks, and two days. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a fantastic film. Fantastic yeah. film, Romanian filmmaker. Yeah. His new film is called RMN, and uh, it's it's really a movie kind of about, um, I guess how anti-immigrant prejudices can rise up in a community, and and yeah, it's a very interesting and sort of topical film mm. to look at there. And he's always a great filmmaker to see. I, I try to see every film he makes. Um, those are two others I would mention as well. Um, but yeah, that's it. Biff is an incredible experience every yeah. year. Um, whether it's, you know, the best lineup of films or just a, a really good one, it's always worth going to. And just the kind of dizzying experience of trying to consume that many films yeah. in that short a time and, and try to, you know, fit in as much as you can in the span of a day. You've seen that's... four films in a day and then want to have an opinion about all those films. Yes. That can be, that can be challenging just to do that. I just think I had the bandwidth to do that. One year I did like four films in the day and then I watched three movies at the midnight. Oh, the midnight fashion. fashion. <laughs> so it was seven movies. I did that once, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's too much. It's, it's too insane. much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, des- definitely testing like your physical endurance yeah. as well. Um, but no, it's it's a great time. And uh, I want to thank you for, for joining Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, any final thoughts on Biff 27? I. Related to the conversation we had earlier, I hope it continues to open up in the ways that it seemed a little more closed off this year. Indeed. Even just in terms of language, things we talked about, things being translated, that seems like a choice rather than a budget thing, and I hope I'm wrong on that. Yeah. I hope it's just an oversight. I hope it's a lack of preparation time. And also, I think something we didn't mention is that until a couple of days before the film festival started, it seemed like you still had to get pcr tests when you're coming to korea and what you did have to do all that stuff and that stopped i think like the day before the film festival started so that might have turned off people from visiting as well it might have played into the choices about translation that oh people aren't going to come because you have to get a pcr test before you leave and when you arrive in korea so you know (laughs) fingers crossed that's not a factor yeah 365 days from now we don't have to worry about pcr tests anymore so i think that might have played into it as well but i hope that stuff isn't happening anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a festival. I think it's fair to say we both love, yeah. and we've seen, uh, I guess, Biff at at its best, and yeah. and you know, during and we're COVID. relative newcomers. Like, yeah, it used to be another part of the city, completely different festival, much smaller. 
Oh, there's an archival footage of of Wangar Wai, Tony Lung, and Maggie Chung coming for uh, in the movie for, for love, love and doing a press <laughs> conference here. That yeah. must have been the sixth or seventh. What was that two thousand two in the movie for love? Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah. So today is the twenty seventh. This is the twenty seventh. Yeah. So quick mental math. That would have been even, twenty twenty one years ago. So the sixth Biff that would have been fifth, wow. or, sixth, fifth or sixth. I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, and it's, I guess, a relatively, it, it, I, I guess it's been around for a while, but it has a lot of room to grow as well. Yeah. So, um, stay tuned for what happens next, I guess, with <laughs> Biff 28, but, uh, yeah, thank you once again for joining us My and, uh, it's great to be back with Now It's Dark. Uh, hopefully we'll have a lot more content coming soon. We have a really interesting interview, uh, that we recorded, uh, me and, and Mike, um, when he was still in Korea, that we recorded a, a little while back, which uh, we hope to have edited and released soon. So until then, be sure to check us out uh, wherever podcasts are found. We also have a YouTube channel where we have uh, some visual essays that we made out of some of our podcasts, as well as I think one or two exclusive videos on there as well. So until then, until our next episode, take care and see you soon.